Welcome to episode number 19 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode, a 1,300-kilometer convergence line flight in Australia. Pete Temple tells us what it was like and how cold it can be at 10,000 feet. Liz Sparrow is one of the people behind WGUK. Women Glide United Kingdom. She tells us about the challenge of getting more women into gliding and the upcoming Women's World Gliding Championships. Julia Clitheroe took to gliding like a duck to water, or is that a pop to a thermal? Anyway, this 16-year-old tells us what it's like to become a licensed glider pilot during a COVID summer. And we will have part two of my interview with retired Canadian contest pilot and record holder Roy Gray. He tells us about an epic flight from Regina into the Muskeg of Manitoba during the 1962 Canadian Nationals. And a short trigger warning, listening to this podcast will make you want to fly, where it's like glider and thermal are often heard. You have been forewarned. That's all on episode number 19 of The Thermal. Let's face it, 2020 was a crap year for most of us. The pandemic has changed the way we fly, and for contest pilots, most competitions were cancelled outright. Jewel flights became an exercise in following strict COVID protocols. But we can count ourselves lucky if we didn't get COVID and our friends and family are healthy. At my club, the Southern Ontario Soaring Association, one young woman was an inspiration to all of us. 16-year-old Julia Clitheroe didn't let COVID get between her and gliding. She didn't just go solo this past summer, but she went all the way through to becoming a licensed glider pilot. I reached Julia at home in Stony Creek, Ontario. So Julia, this pandemic has been awful for all of us. Tell us about this gliding scholarship you had that didn't happen. So within um, the Royal Canadian Air Cadet program, a lot of cadets have a common goal of getting their wings. And they spend years uh, preparing, doing ground school for it, and accumulating points to be more competitive to get this uh, scholarship to become a pilot. And throughout my five years uh, being in cadets, I got the scholarship in the glider pilot scholarship in the spring of 2020. And then shortly after, due to COVID-19, it was cancelled along with all of the other cadet training um, summer camps. They were cancelled and... Basically, a lot of uh, cadets were heartbroken, especially the ones who got the glider pilot scholarship and the power pilot scholarship. So that's just that's just devastating. I mean, I, I was a cadet. I got my license. I can't imagine what that was like for you, being told it's not going to happen. Yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy because we were all super hyped and excited to uh, go off to summer camp and, and get our wings, get our glider pilot license, and... When it was cancelled, honestly, I, I was really bummed out. But then I realized that um, there's no point in being bummed out because there's always other ways to get what you want. So let's talk about that. What did you do next? So after I got the Glider Pilot Scholarship cancelled with the cadet program, I honestly, for a couple weeks, I, I felt a bit hopeless, down, hanging out in my room, saying, oh, why me? This is the worst timing. And then all of a sudden, about two weeks later, after it was cancelled, it kind of clicked to me. I'm like, you know what? I'm absolutely wasting my time being all um, mopey about the situation. I should get up, uh, find a club to join. And um, Sosa Gliding Club became very apparent. 
And I did, did my research. I uh, worked a couple of jobs to, to make money for doing it the civilian way. And I, I showed up. I asked. I had everything prepared, everything. I, I, I had everything ready, such as my medical and, and my ground school training. And basically, I, I went to the club and my training started. And I was so amazed how uh, well it worked out. And talk to, I mean, we're still under COVID. I mean, I saw you at the club, very impressed by you, but it was still a huge challenge because, you know, not every instructor wants to fly at, during COVID. There was a limited number of people. How did that work for you at the club? So getting started, it was a, a bit of a wait because we had to figure out um, proper instructor and student cohorts. And essentially, I, I had my very first couple lessons um, on one of my my first couple days at at uh, Sosa, mm-hmm. and we started with the basics, you know, um, gentle turns and coordinated flights and speed control. And honestly, the the moment I got in the air for the first time as a an actual student, um, working towards my my glider pilot's license, it was just an incredible feeling. Um, especially when I got to actually use all of my ground school knowledge that I learned throughout the years. Um, so you, you were totally in, uh, ready flight, for this. I just found that incredible. You were totally I prepared like and ready. I felt like I was ready. ready. Yeah, I, want, I didn't want to do anything else but fly. Oh, great. So how, how did that? you went through your training, but you, you accelerated quickly. You did a fast job of it, didn't you? Yes, yeah, so... Um, I did. I went solo in about a month, and then in another month I did my flight test, and then um, in another month I did my uh, Transport Canada exam. So it worked out pretty evenly and pretty perfect. Um, I think part of it is I was so driven to progress, and with every little step I took and every little um, area of improvement, I just felt like I just needed to keep going and and uh, have fun with it. What was your first solo like? My first solo was was incredible. It was probably one of the best days of my life. Um, so I was just preparing for a regular lesson with my instructor. And I was filling out the flight ticket and preparing my ballast and scrambling around trying to find my face mask because of COVID times. And then an instructor comes to me and says, oh, you won't need a face mask for this flight. Ah. And I'm like, wait, what? And then soon after, I realized that uh, they were picking up a lot more ballast. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going solo. Uh And it was just, uh, I was so excited, but I felt ready for solo. That's fantastic. It was good. And and you've had a bunch of solos since? Oh, yes, I, I've gone solo quite a number of times. The The moment I released from the tow plane for the first time on my uh, first solo, it was just this indescribable feeling. I felt uh, free, and I felt so proud of myself, and I was just in the moment. And um, I actually decided to thermal on my first solo. <laughs> they, they told me to keep it short, and after 40 minutes... Um, they were like, Julia, are you coming down? And I'm like, I'm way up here. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. And you were flying the K-21, and you've gone on to the the other aircraft, right? 
yes, I, I soloed in the ASK 21, and then uh, soon later I progressed to the single seat junior. Wow. Now, you're very lucky or lucky you're driven, you made it happen, but the vast majority of the young people that did get the glider scholarships in 2020 didn't get a chance to join a gliding club like you. You must be really one of the, the, the very few, if not the only uh, young person that's done this. Yeah, so I, I do think I was really lucky, but um, I knew that it's going to take a lot of hard work. I'm going to need to find a way to make money for this. I'm going to need to bug my parents for transportation because I can't drive on my own yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it took it took weights to figure this out and definitely took a lot of hard work. But I do believe I was extremely lucky to have uh, Sosa Gliding Club and all of the amazing people there. They all had my back and they all supported me. And it was probably one of the best three months of my life. Uh-huh. And I do know of um, one other cadet who got their, their scholarship canceled with the Royal Canadian Air Cadet Program. And they actually got their wings at SOSA afterwards as well. Oh, great. That's great. Now, Julia, what made you want to... Yeah, other, other than that... Oh, sorry. Other no. than that, I don't really know much of many other cadets. Right, right. Now, what made you want to learn to fly in the first place? There's just something about um, flying that just feels magical. And ever since I was like a little girl, I would just always stare at the the sky and every little thing that flew by, whether it be a bird or an airplane, bigger helicopter, um, I'd just be so amazed and it just felt magical. And then as I started learning more and more, even though I have all this technical knowledge on why flight is possible, it still feels absolutely magical to me. And I just knew... Um, it's definitely something I want to do with my life. So talk to me about that. What are, what are your goals after this? And what are your gliding goals and your life goals? Do you want to be a pilot for a living? Sure, yeah. So I definitely want a, a flying career um, or a career in aviation, anything of that sort. So I definitely am I'm going to try to work up my way to uh, a professional job as a pilot, whether it be with the military or in the civilian route, um, I could get a commercial pilot's license. I'm definitely looking at lots of opportunities there. Um, but I, I just applied to universities and a couple of flight programs I was looking at, aviation programs. I'm going to try to do it through the military as well. And I just know that um, wherever I go, I'm going to incorporate uh, aviation inside of it. Wow, fabulous. Now, Specifically, what are your gliding goals for next summer? Are you going to be going cross-country? What What are your plans? That's the hope. I hope to just keep on flying as much as possible because it's really what I enjoy. And I, I hope to keep having fleet progression to more more advanced gliders and, and sailplanes. And I definitely want to, to achieve a bronze badge next summer. That's a nice goal to have. Julia, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, and you're such an inspiration with this whole COVID thing and getting your license the way you did. So congratulations. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Freshly licensed glider pilot, 16-year-old Julia Clitheroe, spoke to me from Stony Creek, Ontario. (laughs) 
The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada in providing full financial support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Free is a good price no matter how you look at it. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interview co-founder Patrick McMahon for more info. Or go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. We have the Proving Grounds at my club in southern Ontario. It's especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distance of the club. Australian gliding instructor and coach Pete Temple is no stranger when it comes to remarkable long-distance flights. He's won the Australian National Championships 10 times and has competed four times at the Worlds. That said, earlier this summer in the Southern Hemisphere, Pete Temple had a particularly sweet flight flying out of his home club, the Adelaide Soaring Club in Gawler, South Australia. He flew a remarkable 1,312 kilometers with an average speed of 135.9 kilometers per hour in his ASG-29. I reached Pete Temple in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Pete. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and uh, good to speak with you. So, I saw the photo you posted on Facebook. You were at something like 15,000 feet, cruising under a cloud street. Was the day as remarkable as it looked in the photograph? Uh, I think the day was probably more remarkable than it looked in the photograph. Um, I intentionally took that photograph actually a bit below 15,000 feet because when you're up at cloud base, of course, you can't really see it. Um, <laughs> you can't see the, like, the street of the, of the convergence line. So I, was, I took it probably, probably 11,000 feet. But uh, it was a truly remarkable day. I mean, that um, it was a convergence line running under a... Uh, we had a trough line that was running from central Australia down to the state of Tasmania, roughly. So this is like a more than 2,000 kilometres long trough line. And, uh, yeah, we have other kind of um, interesting conditions in the area around here where uh, obviously you get thermal in, thermals enhanced in the trough of low pressure. But also we're fairly, we're quite coastal where we are. In fact, where I took off from is only 22 kilometres from the from the coast at, mm -hmm. at Gawla. So we get um, sea breezes that, uh, or sea breeze fronts that line up with the trough line and uh, enhance it as well. So you're just flying effectively along the edge of the sea breeze and, and along the trough line. And, uh, you know, once, once the day got going, which took a while, um, there was, <laughs> I wouldn't say you couldn't come down, but it was just, you know, cruising along kind of thermally if you needed to, but really at generally somewhere between twelve and 15,000 feet. It was really remarkable. So set this up for me. Was it, did you, were you watching the weather? I know you you were using SkySight. Were you planning for a flight like this for a long time? No, not this exact flight. I mean, yes, I did. Um, I did a lot of planning for this flight, and in fact, um, a few people have you know congratulated me on the flight, and I said, oh, well, I was just being in the right place at the right time. But actually, there's a lot more more to it than that, as as you well know. Usually, uh, is, a lot yeah. of planning. Yeah, a lot of planning went into it. Um, 
but most of that planning was only in the in the um, you know, kind of the day or two leading up to it. Our, our playground, if you like, from flying out of Gawler um, is more or less north, mostly, and a little bit to the east, out in the direction of um, uh, the Murray River and Wakery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of nice to fly somewhere a bit different for a change. So when there's opportunities that come up, which showed up in SkySight, uh, I thought, well, how can I exploit this? How can I do the best of it? So the day before, mostly, I spent uh, a good two hours, I guess, poring over it and trying to work out exactly where I could fly. And, you know, because um, we're constrained by all sorts of things, like the geography, constrained by the weather, constrained by airspace. Mm-hmm. And how could I fit? I was planning a 1,000-kilometre flight, basically. And how could I fit that flight within the weather? Uh, so SkySight's great for that because it um, it shows up a number of things. Firstly, um, these days you can put the airspace on it, so you can plot a, a path that kind of avoids the airspace that's on there. Um, but it's also really good at showing up convergence lines. Um, so it didn't really show the trough as such, um, but the convergence lines were definitely there. And it also showed that the conditions out to the east in the direction of Wakery would start very late that day. So I took off at 10 a.m. or just after 10 a.m., um, from Gawler, which mm-hmm. is um, 135 kilometres west of Wakery, and I knew I had to go north from there, which is unfortunately into a headwind. Um, had to go north because, or had to go around some airspace, but had to go north because the conditions east of the hills wouldn't be working for several more hours. So I was pushing into a headwind, was low, was blue. It took me uh, something like two and a half hours to do the first 150 kilometres. So right. I was kind of thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> and these are thermals or are you working the convergence line? So that was just at that time was just thermals. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, even under the convergence line, it's still thermals. It's just thermals that are enhanced by the by the convergence. Right. right so you know, pushing north initially into the, into the wind, um, eventually made my first turn up there and then turned around and came back. And, and once I connected with the cumulus clouds that... The first of those formed about two and a half hours into the flight, so it was blue for the first couple of hours. And um, connected, got up above 10,000 feet, and then spent more than six hours above 10,000 feet, basically roaring up and down the um, the convergence line. So truly magic, yeah. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of preparation for that, and SkySight made all the difference. And we've it's a luxury to have that now. I mean, the, the convergence lines have always been there, of course, but we didn't know where they were, and we couldn't forecast them in advance. And um, you could take some guesses, but it was really spot on in terms of, you know, I extended beyond the task that I originally planned, mm-hmm. but the line of where I flew was exactly where SkySight said it would be. So wow. makes it makes it easy. Cheating, I think, if you like. Well, it's it's technology coming into the cockpit now and helping us set up. I mean, it's pretty remarkable uh, what we can see nowadays compared to you know, just a few years ago. Oh, it certainly is, yeah. makes a big difference. So put, put me in the cockpit. I mean, you're, you're an extremely experienced glider pilot. You've been at it for most of your life. You've had remarkable flights in the past. This flight, did you have a smile from ear to ear? What was it like? Did you just know it was a special day while you are up there? Um, yes, I knew it, definitely knew it was a special day. Um, it's, I mean, under that convergence, I, was, I think you could have just flown along it without thermaling at all, but only if you're cruising at a slower speed. So I was cruising at generally about 90 knots or so, and then every half hour or so I had to do a couple of turns in a thermal. So it's not that often that you get those sorts of conditions. Um, but it was also awfully cold up. I mean, the day that day was 44 degrees Celsius on, on the ground, mm-hmm. which this was spring still, so it was actually unusually warm um, 
that early in the, in the season. But freezing level was like 13,000 or just over 13,500 feet. So if you spend multiple hours up there under the under the cloud in the shade uh, I was extremely cold because I was only dressed in uh, you know, a short sleeve shirt and uh, so I guess that's one thing you, you, you would figure out and, and do something different the next time right uh, I'd probably have something I can put over me I mean I, I fly an HG29 and I had all the had all events kind of closed as much as you can but mm-hmm. uh, you can't close them down completely right so uh I was still you know, a bit on the on the cold side, so yeah. But yeah, it was it was good. I mean, I, I was, flew along the um, um, that convergence line uh, initially down to the southeast into the state of Victoria down there, mm-hmm. and you know, it's staying at twelve, thirteen thousand feet, something like that, as, as I was cruising through. But this was when well, we still have some um, COVID nineteen restrictions now. But at that time, the border with Victoria was actually closed. Which meant that, uh, firstly, you couldn't actually um, legally cross the border without a permit. Even well, in airspace? Okay. Well, I think you can in airspace, but the problem then is that what happens if you land on the other side of the border? So I wasn't willing to, to stray too far from right. the side of the border because, right. um, firstly, you land there and then you have to explain to the authorities what you're doing there. But then there's, uh, there's two weeks of quarantine, compulsory quarantine at both ends. So I was just kind of thinking, well, if I landed in, oh. in Victoria... And then rang up my crew and said, um, "Oh, then they'd have to quarantine." Yeah, for two weeks in both directions, oh. so it would be like a one a one month retrieve. So, yeah. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of a disincentive from from straying too far across the border. So, but when you're at twelve thousand feet, of course, you can go some some distance down sure. across the border. Sure. And it's not much of an issue. But uh, yeah, so I didn't want to go too far down there. Um, but it was still a three hundred and four hundred kilometer leg, I guess, on the on the flight there. And I turned around and then came back along the, the line of the of the street, ran into a few, not literally, but I came across some other gliders, of course, that were playing in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Bernard Ecke was was down there as well. Okay. He was on the, the show last uh, month, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just kept tracking out to the northwest and um, uh, right at the top of um, uh, one of the gulfs here in South Australia is a town called uh, Port Augusta. So I kind of went virtually up to that. So a really long leg, um, and then just I, th- I think I could have stayed up for m- many more hours after the sunset because you know I was still twelve thousand feet. Wow. The convergence line was still roaring along, but you know inevitably the sun does set. So I was keeping an eye on on sunset time and last light time just to crew at uh, time and final glide back into Gawler. So, so for I arrived for those of us who haven't flown in that part of the world yet and I'm, I'm hoping to at some point but are you able to see the coastline the whole time give me an idea of the the landscape you're looking at yeah, most of the flight was within about uh, 50 to 100 kilometers of the coast i guess so pretty well the whole way i mean it's in the distance i guess but pretty mm-hmm. well the whole way you can actually see the coast because the, the flight tracked more or less parallel to the coast within sort of 50, 100 k's of it mm-hmm. for the full length of it. So, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite scenic, actually. Um, down in the southeast, it's, it's pretty flat in that area. Um, high rolling hills that are one or 200 feet above sea level. And then in the, and it, with, the, with the coast out on the western side. And in the northern part of the task area, it's hills 
going up to 2,000, 2,500 feet, something like that above sea level. Quite a pretty area to fly. Um, and then the, the, the uh, Spencer's Gulf north of that, which is uh, with, with a kind of range of hills along the eastern side. And we don't have real mountains like you, you get in right. there. Yeah, like you've got in Canada and and um, in Europe and things like that, but uh, enough to make it interesting. Wow, sounds beautiful. Now you mentioned being able to use SkySight to be able to figure this flight out, which is something that you you know you wouldn't be able to do just four or five years ago. Are you now looking at other opportunities that you can take advantage of? Well, I'm keeping an eye on the weather. I mean, I've done some big flights, um, heading out and return flights from Gawler mm-hmm. uh, in similar sorts of conditions where you get a trough line, a stationary trough line that sets up running north-south more or less. And I've done out and return 1,000-kilometre flights in the past, and this season, hopefully, if um, the weather is favourable, I'm looking, got my eye on a 1250 out and return from Gawler, which takes you to very remote territory in, in central Australia. And so you have to plan for that, right? Oh, you definitely got to plan for it. You've got to have... Um, crew willing to come and get you if you if you need to. Um, I've got a pure ASG29, so I don't have an engine, not that it's going to get you back from that sort of distance away anyway. But um, you've got to know your landing places because it's very remote outback country. There's almost no civilization, virtually no roads. Um, so you basically have to hop from airstrip to airstrip. And as long as they're so 30, 40 kilometres or, or, or less apart, that's, that's not an issue. Right. But I always... You know, always thought, well, if I outland kind of at the furthest extent of one of these flights, the, ret- the retrieve's going to be you know, a several-day affair to do that. So you've got um, to carry extra water just in case there's nothing where you land and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and some of these aerodromes are even uh, uninhabitable. Well, if you landed on them, you know, they're safe to land on, but there's there's no civilization around. There'll be a track or something coming into them, so you basically have to wait by the aircraft. There's no... Uh, mobile phone or cell phone coverage, of course, in these areas. So um, you just have to wait by the aircraft and let them come out and, come and find, find you, you and make sure, yeah, make, make sure you got the water, of course. Um, but I, I carry a fair bit of water. And of course, if I was landing in in a remote area like that, I would keep some of my um, the water ballast from the glider. So right. So there's plenty of plenty of water to drink. So now, COVID seems to be under control in Australia. Are your is your national competition going to go ahead this year? Or are you going to be able to fly in some of these events? Yeah, so we've got the, the two national competitions that were planned were cancelled because of COVID. We now have another one, which is a, a combination of the other two nationals that we had, which is planned up in um, Queensland in March now. Okay. So all going all going well, and, and COVID nineteen situation is pretty well under control at the moment. We've we've got no community Lucky transmission. You at the moment in, in Australia. So that's, that's, that's really good. So looks really hopeful, hopeful that that will go ahead. Um, but you never know. We, we still have a lot of return travellers coming back through quarantine. Right. But you're in and a pretty good spot, place at the moment, and things are looking positive. They're looking really good, yeah. And are you going to fly in the, in the nationals? Probably. I'm not sure. It's, um, it's the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, still um, looking at the options. I'm yeah, also it's quite a big busy country. with other yeah. things at that time. Well, Pete, listen, thank you very much for telling us about this remarkable convergence line flight. Uh, like I said, that, that photograph, boy, was that ever a, a gorgeous shot, and I could only imagine being that high underneath a, a gorgeous cloud street like that. So uh, you, made, you made me very jealous. 
Well, that, I guess it wasn't really the intent, but I kind of <laughs> wanted to show people what it was like up there. Listen, pleasure speaking with you, and I uh, hope to speak to you again at some point in the future. Okay, will do. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye. Pete Temple spoke to me from Adelaide, South Australia. I'll put a link to the photos and Pete's OLC trace on the Thermals Facebook page. of gliding has pretty well always been dominated by, well, middle-aged white guys like me. In my own experience at the various clubs I've belonged to, the percentage of female pilots has always been very low, not more than, say, 5%. In the UK, an organization called Women Glide United Kingdom is trying to change things. It's a group of female glider pilots that advocates on behalf of and encourages women pilots. Liz Sparrow is a founding member of Women Glide UK and the championship director of the upcoming 2022 Women's World Gliding Championships. I reached Liz in West Titherley, Hampshire. Liz, hello, and thanks for coming on to The Thermal. My pleasure, Harry. So, getting more women into the sport of gliding, it's always been a challenge. What needs to change to bring the percentages up? Well, I don't know what the numbers are in Canada, but in the UK, it's just under 7% of uh, pilots that are are women. Yeah, it's about that or Um, less here. Yeah, and I mean, I've been flying since 1990, and I think that figure hasn't really changed very much in in most of that time. So uh, something needs to change to to make that possible. And uh, one of the things a group of us from the women's team got together quite a while ago now, 10 years, 15 years ago, and started to say, right, okay, what might we do that could help to change it? And we founded a thing called Women Glide UK. And Women Glide exists to encourage more women to do more flying. Simple as that. Okay. And I think part, part, of the, part of the issue is that if you're only maybe one woman in a club somewhere, or maybe one or two, but perhaps only one. It's a very male environment, and uh, you you haven't really got anybody to talk to. You haven't got your own bit of community in there. So Women Glide, we we sort of set up, and there's a website, but we talk on Facebook, um, and and it exists as a virtual community for anybody, and uh, and they can talk to us, uh, and people talk to each other, and. Uh, give yourself some sort of support so you don't feel quite so alone when you're out there right right but so in in practical terms do, do you try and give various gliding clubs in the uk information on how to retain female members or encourage them to join is there anything like that well what what, what we did a, a couple of years back we did what we called a baseline survey and uh because we sort of you know People always tell me, oh, I know what the problem is, it's so-and-so. And we thought, do you know what? We'll actually do a survey and get some data around this, mm-hmm. rather than assuming what what everyone's always assumed. Right, go for um, the facts. And, well, yes, yes, unreasonable. Huh? And, and we, we asked, we asked um, and we posted it internationally as well. So, so I think we got a couple of hundred responses, mm-hmm. um, given there are about 400 uh, female glider pilots in the uk but we we got to over a quarter of the active uk female glider pilots but we also got out to people who had taken a trial lesson 
uh, and carried on, not carried on. Uh, and people who used to glide and don't glide anymore, who'd been more experienced pilots and didn't glide anymore. And we, and we got a number of people from overseas also replied. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we asked, you know, why do you glide? And actually, most women glide for, for the freedom, for being in the moment, for the challenge and fun, was, was what they said, which is great. They're mm-hmm. gliding for all the right reasons. Right. Um, and we asked what made... Why, why people had stopped gliding and what would encourage them to restart gliding. So we actually got quite a lot of good information on that. And uh, so, you know, the most common reasons that people stopped were time. Nearly 60% of people said it was a time issue. And, uh, and of course, as we know, sort of standard gliding thing in, in the old days, as it were, was you turned up at 7 a.m. you push gliders around all day and you got two five-minute winch launches and uh, and then yes exactly and you know that that works for the half of society that perhaps doesn't have childcare issues and so on and so on and so on it absolutely doesn't work for women at all you know or it works for a very small percentage of women Mm -hmm. and they're the ones that are out there um and money was quotas a big problem for for many women women on the whole um on average earn less than than men and whilst some earn lots of money on average they earn less and on average there are less women in gliding you know right. i think it's <clears throat> and confidence was was an issue for for women as well and i think you know i've i've been an instructor for an awfully long time and it is a it's a sort of generalization but it seems to be true that on the whole women are underconfident and men are overconfident right, and that's a whole their, different discussion as to why that's happened over the de- over the it, millennia i suppose in in indeed you know and i mean it's 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 at least possibly you know partly nature a lot of nurture um but it means that of course women tend to uh, stand back rather than standing forward and then the men that are there are in their way you know mm-hmm. and, and they go and do something else but one of the big things sorry carry on well i just wanted to pick up on something that you said and and it's the same for men and people who leave gliding clubs you know you have children work gets in the way and all that kind of thing has women glide uk thought about targeting the the women who are you know the kids are in uh, almost out of school they've got those things behind them and then they can you know there might be a, a group of women that are really uh available for something like gliding but may not know about it well the answer is that until fairly recently specifically no we hadn't done that because that wasn't our role Mm -hmm. those of us that were involved in it because there's you know we're a core of four or five people and i'm sure it's the same in uh, canadian gliding clubs it's certainly the case all over the uk and many european uh, places that the women who are in gliding clubs are disproportionately busy with gliding club roles mm-hmm. they're all instructors they're probably on the committee and so on and so on so you know we we have only limited time to do stuff and w- those of us that have mostly been involved have been at the sort of top end towards competitive gliding generally. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, what we can do is we can encourage the next layer down and they can encourage the next layer down and so on. And we can do that to build our own community. But in terms of actually going out and marketing to people, that's 
something for the British Gliding Association as a whole, for the sport as a whole, to think mm-hmm. about how to do this. We can offer the advice and so on. So until fairly recently, that was sort of what we'd been doing. But off the back of this uh, um, baseline uh, survey, we actually did talk at, at length to uh, the, the Centre of Sport. And, and the BGA, as a result, has actually put... Uh, the, they, they were reviewing the overall strategy and uh, and have added in a thing saying that 10 to 20 years from now, or at least from two years ago when they revised the strategy, the demographic of gliding should reflect the demographic of the UK. And that's such a big thing. Harry. Yes, that it is. is. A huge, huge thing. You know? So we're, we're not just talking um, women, we're talking visible minorities, everything else. Absolutely, yes. Yes, in, indeed, and uh, I'm so glad you said we're not just talking women, we're talking about, because people go, oh yeah, women and other minorities, and we go, hello, we're the majority, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, this this was the sort of first step along the way, mm-hmm. and off the back of off the back of that happening, um, we, we said, okay, we should look at what we could set up as a sort of women project, what would you have to do? from getting them onto the field in the first place all the way through to keeping the ones you've got and training up the ones at the top end who are almost good enough to be in the world team to boot me out uh, because they're better than me, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we decided, actually, one of the things we could do fairly easily was sort of pull from the top. And that's why we pitched to uh, hold the next Women's World Gliding Championships in the UK, it doesn't immediately address the problem, but it gives us an opportunity to make so much noise about gliding and about women gliding uh, that there's a lot that can be hung off that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and that's what we did, and we got lucky at our first attempt, and uh, that's why the Women's World Gliding Championships in 2022 in August will be at Husbands Bosworth Airfield, the gliding centre. So before we get into those championships, I just want to ask a little bit mm-hmm. more. So the, the layered approach and a larger backing through the BGA is the way you guys are moving forward and trying to get more women and minorities into the sport. And I mean, there's sometimes what happens, there's a lot of lip flap and things don't actually, concrete things don't actually happen. Are, are you convinced or hoping that this is actually going to result in bigger numbers? I, yes, I'm convinced it will, but, you know, it, at, the, at the moment, there's a statement that says the demographic should reflect, etc., etc. Um, that obviously needs to be turned into hard action plans before anything changes. Mm-hmm. And the structure in the UK is that individual people are not members of the BGA, individual members individual people are members of their club and the clubs are members of the bga so we have to get the cascade going mm-hmm. where the you know where 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 the if that's the bga strategy how does a club contribute to that and how does the bga encourage them to do that or make them do it or incentivize them to do it mm-hmm. uh, and and so on so that that cascade needs to come down and how that happens is something that the BGA executive committee are, are just talking about at the moment. You know how so how a, a work this. in progress. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But one of the great things is that we we've, we've got this comp, and 
we're trying to do something a little bit different with it, which is instead of just doing something that's a brilliant comp to fly in, we want people to see what fun people have flying in this competition. And targeting and, women uh, in particular. And targeting women in disproportionately targeting women but not only targeting women right. it's about raising the profile of gliding and particularly women gliding is the way i describe which, which it which should be yeah. relatively easy to do because the media loves stories like that the, the general media yeah um, absolutely so uh, <clears throat> so that's what we're trying to do and we're uh, we we've got a, a project to to looking at that and <clears throat> how what we need to do around the competition itself. You know I mean, what? Obviously, we, I'm going to interrupt for a second. We should talk offline yeah. about that a little bit, and I might be able to give you guys some media advice um, on on how to get more media interviews to get a higher profile. Um, just with my experience hey, as a media guy, so uh, we can talk about that, that separately. That would be really good, and anything you can do to help harry would be just so so appreciated because i don't know anything about you really yeah so, uh, well so, i have a bit of a media background and i've used that successfully in canada to get to garner more interviews and that kind of stuff so um we'll, right. we'll talk separately yeah. about that brilliant okay yeah. so liz <laughs> you're the uh championship director of the upcoming world's women gliding competition what uh, does that actually entail and what are you going to be doing there okay so um what 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 it entails is well let let me tell you why I'm the championship director to start with a, a group of us from the team said right okay we really should do this it's obvious thing to do and I thought do you know what I'm going to be so intimately involved in the setting up the project and so on I'm not going to be able to fully focus on my own flying because unfortunately right you know yeah it, exactly so if I if I can't fully focus on my own flying why don't I focus on making it the best comp ever and uh, and doing something making sure that the comp is something that addresses the the whole thing about raising the profile of gliding and particularly women gliding i'm going to focus on that and then i'll come back and win me next medal at the next one so <laughs> that'll do so so what what does it mean we've obviously we've got the the project um has been running for a bit now and with covid happening last year everything slid back a year uh so this coming summer we have uh, a, a practice competition, if you like, pre-worlds competition mm -hmm. at the same same site where everything that we want to do in the world will be practicing um, and doing in uh, testing out and making sure that everything works. And, and this is at Husbands Bosworth, a, a so gliding this club. This is at Husbands Bosworth, yes. So the gliding centre. It's it's a, a nice sensible size gliding club for for a competition of uh, 50 or 60 people mm -hmm. which is the normal size of the women's worlds uh right in the center of england so in terms of trying to get to women in the uk everyone who's already a pilot it's really central for them and uh everyone who's not a pilot you know there's big um towns around there and conurbations and it's very easy to uh, get out to the local community mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so that's that's why we decided to hold it there rather than at Lasham, which was sort of the the club for uh, me and Ayala, who uh, were sort of uh, originators of of the bid. Right. Uh, but this is the right place to hold it, and it also gets the best weather. And of course, one of the great things about uh, <coughs> about the UK is 
people overseas think that uh, UK weather's rubbish for gliding. Although, uh, when we did hold the uh, Europeans at Lasham, we got more days gliding out of it than uh, than the competition that was going on at Benalla in Australia at the same time. Yeah. I think we've never let them forget. <laughs> I used to love my summers in the UK, and I have great memories of that. So, with a bit of luck, COVID is you know, the delay is actually going to work in your favor because by 2022, in theory, we're all vaccinated and uh, it should be a go. Well, I, I hope so. I, obviously, you know, we we took an early decision last year just to not hope it would happen, but to put everything back. Yeah, so we smart. went back to, yeah, in, indeed. Um, and so there's still a question as to whether people, you know, how easy it will be for people overseas to come to the UK to, to fly. But mm-hmm. we're hoping by the time the practice competition, which is in uh, August this year, August 21, sorry, not this year, um, by the time that happens, hopefully everything will be working again. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's given us more time to think about the, the wider things around raising the profile of gliding. Mm-hmm. And so we've been working on, for example, a whole load of um, units, STEM units for schools, for, uh, <clears throat> for primary and secondary school students to, to learn about gliding uh, whilst doing some of the lessons that they have to do anyway, fitted to our STEM stands for? Ah, oh, STEM is uh, science, technology, engineering, and maths. Ah, very good. So one one of the things that uh, in the UK we're underrepresented on on that, but of course, uh, certainly in the UK, disproportionately, loads of uh, glider pilots tend to be engineers. I'm an engineer, so uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. we we thought using gliding is a really good practical way to get people enjoying the fun of uh, of maths and enjoying the fun of science and engineering. Right, right. So, <clears throat> and and. If they also learn about gliding at the same time, well, that that does everything for us, doesn't it? So, Absolutely. so we're we're looking at doing that, and that will engage with all the local schools to uh, the gliding centre. But we're also making it into uh, some video resources that schools can use all around the country. So we're just at the point of testing them all out at the moment. Oh, that sounds great! Breaking you... things and spilling water all over the place. Great, oh, very good. Now, I, I spoke to. Katrin Senna, one of the German uh-huh. pilots who flew the uh, the world in Australia uh, earlier yeah, this year. Yeah, I hate her. I hate <laughs> her now. It's official. I hate her. I was in third place until the last flying day, and she knocked me out of third place, and we had to sit there for two days of not being able to fly with me being able to do nothing about it. <laughs> oh, well, that comes with it, right? Yeah. Now, yeah, I, actually, I did ask no, her. Seriously, Katrin, yeah, she, she's, she's great. She and I have been flying against each other for for a while now. So I asked her the question about why there needs to be a separate contest for women, when in fact most of the women pilots I know can fly circles around most of the men pilots I know. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Why does there need to be a separate championship for women? Okay, if if you do the sums, and just make it easy because I'm an engineer, if, if about 5%, that's about 1 in 20 pilots are uh, women, okay? Uh, that means that you're only have a one in 20 chance of, of getting a woman in the very top rank and actually it's worse than that because we know that for women role modeling is really 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 important much more important for women if you can't see it you really don't believe you can be it mm-hmm. so so women are not or that there are there are a small number of women in the very top rank but it is a really small number 
and most people from clubs just don't see it. So the fact that there is the opportunity to have a women's competition enables the sort of next rank that aren't quite at the unrestricted international competition level mm -hmm. to get international competition experience, build confidence, build community. Uh, you know, gliding is an international community, international gliding particularly, which is how, you know, I can say, I can tell Catherine I, I hate her and she knows I'm joking. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and so, so whilst there is a tiny, tiny number of women in the sport, it's okay to have a women's world championships. And in the UK, we, we've sort of said, would we want at women's nationals and decided on balance, no, because we, we can do things locally mm -hmm. that are encouraging our, our local women. And, and we are doing. And so, for example, we've now got, as part of the world's project, we've got a squad who've been in training, virtually mostly, uh, virtually in training, uh, through through all the lockdown and everything. But they're the people who are not quite at the international level, who we've now got operating as a squad and coaching them up so that they are at international level so that we can put a full team in uh, for the contest at uh, the gliding centre. You know, the, so, the, the point you just mentioned about the percentage of women pilots and that now to me makes really good sense about why to hold the separate championships. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. 50 years from now or 30 years from I, now, uh, that, that won't the, be necessary, I, but... Yeah, I, I so hope so, because, yes, when we're in the same glider, it is a le level playing field. Mm -hmm. It's just that so few of us are out there in yeah. the gliders. Yeah, that know, makes sense. And, uh, and particularly, you know, when you get into the top classes, the gliders are outrageously expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on average, women don't earn enough to, or they, they earn less on average. Right. And so fewer of the women who are in gliding fly in the big glider classes right, you right. know if, if you look they're they're very very much more represented in the club class end than they are in the uh, 18 meter open class end mm. and i'm just outrageously lucky to have been able to uh, afford uh, part of a, a shiny 18 meter machine and i'm having such fun with that well i was going to ask uh, you about that before i let you go tell me a little, little yes. a little bit about yourself and what you fly okay so i've flown in the club class for oh since forever and uh about three years ago one of my mates said i've just got myself an asg 29 would you like a go in it <laughs> oh dear oh, we all that need friends like the that. Most but it was the most expensive aerotow i've ever taken <laughs> because uh i i just completely fell in love with what you can do with with these 18 meter machines which have almost the handling and briskness of a club class thing, but the uh, the, the performance of an open class uh, glider. So, so I, I then uh, shook the piggy bank and uh, and sold everything I could. And <clears throat> and when when uh, Alan, my husband, was looking the other way one day, I got myself a share in an ASG twenty nine. So uh, good for you. And and I and that was I I raced uh, in uh, eighteen meter in the twenty nine uh, in Australia, and goodness me, we had some fun doing that. Oh, wow. Great conditions. I'd never been to Australia before. And uh, there was one day on one of the practice uh, sessions before before the main comp, I did 300k over 100 miles an hour. You know? Wow, wow. <laughs> nuts. Completely yes. nuts. Well, yeah. I'm looking forward so, to starting uh, flying again once winter is over. Same with you. Yes, yes, indeed. So, uh, 
uh, can only come uh, can't come too quickly i would say and i hopefully i mean in the uk we get some good weather uh, if we're lucky we we get some good thermal conditions from february onwards uh, it's cold but uh, storable not for very long but you might get uh, couple or three hours to to get out and race around a couple of hundred k or something let's keep our fingers so, yeah. crossed because under covid we all deserve something to look forward to don't we just yes we have been good so there you are santa should bring us a nice year yeah. next year i think liz it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, i hope to meet you at some point in the future and uh, good luck with your endeavors well thank you very much harry and uh, all the very best to you and all our friends in canada as well take care liz thank you bye bye Liz Sparrow is a founding member of Women Glide UK, and she spoke to me from West Titherley in Hampshire, the United Kingdom. Earlier in the show, you heard Pete Temple talk about the gliding weather app SkySight. This fabulous app is designed with glider pilots in mind and even has a very cool convergence line tool that helped Pete plan and execute his flight. And here in the Northern Hemisphere, I've used it to surf the Lake Erie Convergence Line numerous times. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. On episode number 18 of The Thermal, we heard Roy Gray tell us about his 1964 flight of a lifetime, a diamond-distance flight from southwest Ontario across the U.S. border and to Dutchess Airport northwest of New York City, a declared gold distance of 558.4 kilometers. It's a flight that Roy still revels in, but Roy and his K-6 had another equally memorable flight in 1962 at the Canadian National Gliding Championships that were held in Regina, Saskatchewan that summer. It was a true old-school cross-country flight that was made well before the days of GPS and cell phones. Roy picks up the story with the contest task of the day. The intent was free distance. I mean, that was the goal for the day, just free distance. And everybody was planning to fly down into North Dakota. You know, the wind was coming out of the, the Northwest. Well, shortly after getting towed up and releasing, it was apparent that the wind was not coming from the Northwest. It was coming from the Southwest. And, of course, if you're going for free distance, you want the wind behind you. So I changed course and ended up flying to the Northeast and very quickly flew off any maps that I had with me. <laughs> but I had a compass, so I just kept flying to the northeast uh, over very uh, unknown territory. But uh, I ended up, well, we had decided at the pilots' meeting in the morning that because we're flying down into North Dakota, good roads, it's flat land, um, the uh, rule was if anybody flies over 200 miles, then the next day would be a rest day to allow them time to get back and rest up. But because it was North Dakota, we all decided, yeah, 250 miles shouldn't be a problem either. So we changed the rule to 250 miles. But turns out I ended up flying 264 miles. 14 miles farther. The only the only one that went more than 250 miles 
But I ended up, and I wrote an article about it called The Flight into the Muscate. Because as you get into the northern part of uh, Saskatchewan, uh, it gets very rugged. And there, there are some big lakes there. And uh, late in the in the flight, I was kind of on the east western shore of a pretty large lake that I could see across it. And I ended up in a nice evening thermal. And I've worked that thermal up to over 5,000 feet. So now I'm sitting there on the east edge of this lake, looking at the other side, saying, should I try going across? And I'll find some place on the other side. Because I saw a road, looked like an arrow, straight arrow. And there was a peninsula in the middle of the lake. So I thought, well, I could, if I run into a heavy downdraft or something, I, I can turn around and come back. And I always got the peninsula, so I wouldn't be down in the water. But it was a very, very smooth. It was the end of the day again, uh, very calm conditions. So I just kept on going to the east and ended up... Uh, flying down this long road looking for any kind of buildings or structures. There were very few. And uh, eventually I had to commit to uh, landing. So I did land on a dry lake bed, not terribly far away from this gravel road that I had been having my eye on. Uh, I figured if there's a road, there's got to be some kind of buildings and people around somewhere. So did you wave a car down? How did you uh, get back that day? Uh, that's the other neat, interesting part of the story. When I landed, I tied the, the aircraft down um, and decided I would walk across a wooded area towards the gravel road. So I tried that. I walked for a while like half an hour. It's like, where's this road? So I decided to climb up into a, a dead skeg tree to look around, try to orient myself. And the first thing I saw was the white wing of the K-6. <laughs> so I had done a nice circle. So kind of uh, acknowledged, well, that didn't work. So I went back to the K-6, walked east to where I had seen a, a shack, uh, like a, oh, a rancher's cabin. It was just a, a supply shack. So I walked back there, and it was starting to get uh, dark, getting late. And there was a trap that led into this uh, cabin from the dirt road. I thought, well, I'll... I'll get some water because I didn't have any water with me. And I, I found a, a well that the farmer used, I guess, for watering horses or cattle and uh, pumped up some water from, from that well. Tasted terrible the first time I got some. Tastes like swamp water. But as I kept pumping it, it got better. So I ended up putting some in a jar that I found in this uh, shack. And... Uh, took it with me and walked towards this uh, gravel road. And by the time I got out there, it was dark. 
that the moon was out bright and this road just went on for miles straight ahead. It's just a straight line. So I just started walking. <laughs> the prairies. Walking to the east. And I walked for probably an hour. And uh, eventually I saw a light off to the side. And a driveway went, went in and knocked on their door. And it's now 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> Just, and and uh, the people back at the club where the contest is are wondering where you are. They have no idea where I am, no. So I ended up, uh, he gave me uh, tea and, and a cake and said he would drive me into the nearest town, which was 10 miles to the east, a town called St. Martin. So we ended up driving into St. Martin. He drove me in there. He knew that it's a very small town, you know, in a couple hundred people, maybe. He had to wake up the telephone operator <laughs> so that I could call back to Regina. Right. It, it's getting close to midnight by then. And they were there waiting, waiting for my call. So my, my crew had stopped at the RCMP station down near Winnipeg. I think it was Brandon, Manitoba, because they, they had no idea where to go or what to do, so they were just waiting waiting for information. And uh, But they were 250 miles south of me, 300 miles south of me. I was way up north. The family I connected with up there that uh, gave me the ride said that north of there, there are no towns. <laughs> you're in. You're into the watershed, into uh, James Bay, north of there. So, so I you went. And always, got a hotel room for the night and and had a good I sleep did. while your crew drove all through the night. I did. I did. I did that. Got up and they got there around eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> my you're... my dad was crewing and a very good friend, uh, Hardy Nellis from Sosa. Mm-hmm were crewing for me. So, yeah, it, uh, it was good that we had the next day as a rest day because there's no way we were going to get back right. in time to fly the next day. It sounds to me that even though this happened 60 years ago, that it, it sounds like it happened yesterday in your memory. Yes, yeah, very much so. Before I let you go, do you, do mm -hmm. you still dream about gliding? Do you chase thermals oh, in your absolutely. in your dreams? Absolutely, hmm. I do. Yeah, great. Yeah, it, uh, it was a joy. It was uh, just uh, very memorable experience. And there's no way it's very hard to relay that information, that kind of feeling, to anyone that hasn't experienced it. I agree. Uh, Roy's you know, been a it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to meet you at some point if you're out in this part of the world. So thank you very much. Yeah, that would be nice, Harry. It was very nice uh, chatting with you, and hope it was uh, what you were looking for. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, okay. okay, take care, Roy. Thank you. All right, take care now. Bye -bye. Stay safe. Bye-bye. 
1962 Gold Distance flight took him from Regina to the middle of Manitoba, a distance of 425 kilometers. Roy spoke to me from his home in Sonora Pass, California. That's it for episode number 19 of The Thermal. I will be back again early February with another show that will include an interview about contest flying old glass ships in Australia. Please remember to let your fellow glider pilots know about the podcast. It's a labor of love that's only rewarded by the number of listens I get. Many of you have gotten in touch with ideas for the show. Please keep them coming. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>